entitled Holy Violence, Holy Violence. Um, we're going to be in this stream of thought for the next three or four Sundays. I'm going to go slow with this and move away slowly. I believe it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a word from the Lord for all of us, and we're going to take our time to move through this together. So I want to share the key passage that we're going to begin from, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll just journey together. Matthew chapter 11, verse 12, just one verse. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh upon us. Fall fresh upon us. We need you, Holy Spirit. You are the great interpreter. You are the great helper. You're the one who instructs us. You illuminate us. We do not need that which proceeds out of man's wisdom and out of our own gray matter. We need what is born of the Spirit of God to bring the words of life to rhema, to living to our souls, Lord. So just, Lord, help me, Lord, to manifest that in a way that honors you most of all. And that's congruent, God, with your great truths found in Scripture. Open our eyes that we can see. Open our ears that we can hear freshly what you, Holy Spirit, are saying to the church in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. So for those of you that don't know me well, or you may know me a little bit, I want to share just a, just a piece of my story with you that's going to create some context behind what we're going to be talking about in the coming weeks. So I was saved when I was 13 years old, born again in a little United Methodist church. I came to know the Lord. One week later, I went to a prayer meeting at this little Methodist church, and they introduced me to the person called the Holy Spirit. They said, would you like to be filled with the Spirit? Again, I've only been a Christian for a grand total of seven days before I learned the language of Christianese, before I learned the vocabulary. But I remember two ladies came up and asked me, they said, would you like to be filled with the Holy Spirit? And I didn't know any better but to say, sure, I would love that. And they prayed for me, and it was in, it was in that moment I had what I would call a dramatic encounter with the power of God in my little 13-year-old self. And from that moment on, the Lord just put me on a, on a specific track of experiencing him. A year later, there was a Brazilian Methodist evangelist um, that we connected with, and I went on a mission trip to Rio de Janeiro with him. He had an evangelistic ministry there, and he was also building a Bible school. So we would work during the day in the, in the construction of the Bible school, and then we would go out at night to preach in large auditoriums where he would do evangelistic crusades. So you can imagine, um, when we arrived in Brazil for the very first time, we did not have one of these crusades right away. Because one of the things that he told us, he said, before we go evangelize and, and before we get into these crusades, I need you to be spiritually ready for what you're going to see and what you're going to encounter. Again, I'm 14 years old, been saved for about a year, hadn't been exposed to a whole lot. But he said, I need you to pray and fast 
for three days before we go and begin to minister. Now, I had never fasted before up to that point, but he said, no, we're going to fast for three days. You can drink juice. But now bear in mind, we are working out in the Brazilian mud all day long, sweating, having to dig the footings for this building while we were fasting. And in addition to that, he wanted us to pray for an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening. Now, I'm telling you, it was brutal. And I had never been so hungry in my entire life. I had never fasted. And I remember I had, brought, I had brought this big pack of big red chewing gum with me to Brazil. I mean, it was just like these big, big, big packs. I chewed probably 40 packs of gum in about three days. I was so hungry. I could have eaten anything. Now, I would later learn that actually chewing gum makes you more hungry. So I was actually making it worse for myself as I was chewing gum and activating all my digestive juices. But I was just so hungry at the end of three days. I was so grateful that we got to eat before we went to our first evangelistic service. So we got, all, we, um, got in the van. We made the trip from the outskirts of Rio de Janeiro to the inner city. And we went to this auditorium. It was called ABI. I remember it was ABI. And we went in, and there was two or 3,000 people that gathered. And it was just electric. Again, it wasn't a church service. It was, a, it was an auditorium, so you had a variety of people there. So the evangelist would get up and preach. He would preach in Portuguese. I had no idea what he was saying. But then he gave the altar call. You know, you're familiar with altar calls. And, and this is how he did the altar call. He said, if you need to be saved, come right here. If you need healing in your body, come right here. If you need to be free of evil demonic spirits, come right here. That was basically the three altar calls that he gave. Now, he assigned us there on the team, there's about maybe 20 of us, on which part of the altar to work in. So I was kind of hoping, you know, to get the, you know, healing side or the, or I'll pray for you to get saved. But he assigned me and a handful of others over on the um, deliverance section. Now, again, I've been safe for about a, um, a year, had never seen anything like that except for some horror movies that I shouldn't have watched early on, I guess. But I didn't know anything about what was going on. So he gives the altar call. We get in our positions, and quite frankly, I wasn't expecting, I mean, who's going to come to the altar to say, hey, I want, the, I want the devil cast out of me? Just not a typical altar call you hear in this country. So I stood there, and I mean, 50, 100, 200 people started coming forward right here, needing to be delivered of, of evil spirits. Some people were actually being carried to the altar by family members and friends because they were in a semi-unconscious state as they were being drugged to the altar. So I'm like sitting there, you know, and, I'm, and, my, and my chin falls down. I said, oh dear God, what am I supposed to do? And then, and then I was aware then at that moment, oh, I think this is why we had to pray two hours a day and fast three days about what was fixing to happen. Now, I won't tell you all the sensational stories. You can, you can buy the book if I ever write it. But, I will, but, I, but I'll tell you, what I saw shocked me at, at such a level as people were being freed of demonic forces. There were manifestations. There were things that were happening. And literally two and a half hours later, I was completely spent as we were watching all kind of things happen and people getting set free from demonic spirits. Truly, it was the Gospels and the book of Acts coming to life in front of my 14-year-old self. And I can tell you, you don't experience something like that and not be changed by it. And I came back being a different person than I was before I left. Because here's the truth, and you may know this. As a Western Christian, we have largely lived in a Christian 
culture. I don't want to say we're a Christian nation, but we live in a Christianized culture. Therefore, our, our faith is so often not challenged. And, and, and as a result of living in the nation we have got to live in for many, many years, we can become very complacent because the culture may not be Christian, but they largely agree with where we stand morally. Therefore, it, 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 it perpetuates almost a nonchalant attitude toward our faith, and we can become very passive in our Christianity. But in that moment in Brazil, I learned something, that the faith I have, the Jesus I follow, isn't a passive faith, isn't a nonchalant faith. It's not one that I'm going to be able to do from the recliner or the sofa, but something went on inside of me realizing, oh, this is actually real. This is actually authentically real. This is, this is powerful. So when I talk about spiritual violence, I'm talking about what, what is it that creates something inside of us to pursue a spiritual violence? Now, when we look at this passage this morning, it's not one that's easy to understand. You can read lots of commentaries and people's opinions on this, but it, it, it seems very uh, strange if you don't understand some of the backdrop and some understanding of the words that are being used. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. So then, what is spiritual violence? Now, let's just take a moment. We're, we're going to slow down a bit, and we're going to take some steps through this very carefully to, I believe, put some building blocks in, in, in all of our hearts. So what is spiritual violence? I believe this passage contains a juxtaposition between two things, between religion that's endeavoring to shut the door of the kingdom of God in people's faces, and also a quality, a characteristic of a follower of Jesus that's contained in this passage. There's both things being done. Because we know what religion seeks to do. Religion seeks to do violence against the kingdom of God by shutting the door of the kingdom of God in people's faces. This is what a spirit of religion is motivated by. Check out this passage in Matthew 23. You know, Jesus had some of his most harsh language against the spirit of religion that was operated, operated inside the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Zealots and the Essenes and, and whatnot. Matthew 23, 13, listen to the words of Jesus. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. See, this is what religion does. It, it shuts off the truths of the kingdom of God in people's faces. But on the other side of it, there's a characteristic of this that it's the, it's the violent, though, that take the kingdom by force. Now, our purposes over the next few weeks, we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about the spirit of religion. We're going to talk about the, the, the other side. What is a spiritual violence that would cause the people of God to take the kingdom by force? First of all, in the translation of the English language, the word violence is not the most ideal word for us here. When we hear the word violence in English, perhaps, at least my mind does, I go to anger, rage, and fighting. In other words, this is not the type of violence that's being talked about right here. In fact, there is a, um, 
aberration of Christianity called liberation theology that was very big back in the 70s and 80s and even before that people would read this passage and they would use it to validate actually taking up machine guns and AK-47s to go against the government for the, for the sake of religion. That's not what's being talked about here. It's something else. It's not anger and rage, but the word violence denotes this. It's a forcing oneself or a pressing of oneself into. So you could say then, those who have this, have this violence in them are pressing themselves and forcing themselves into the kingdom of God. Which means there's a work inside of us that is compelling us to do another work, which is pressing ourselves into the kingdom. The great preacher, Charles Spurgeon, in a message on this very subject he preached, he would say it like this, when God works in our soul, it sets us to working. When God works in our soul, it sets us to working. What I mean is this, there is a grace-filled zeal fueled by a hunger and thirst for righteousness that should be normative for all believers. I want to say that again. There is a grace-filled zeal fueled by a hunger and a thirst for righteousness that should be normative for me and normative for you operationally. Now, before we dive in, this is, this is where I want to kind of go off, off, the, um, off the map for a bit here. Because before we dive into the specifics and practicals on how to be spiritually violent, we want to lay some foundation first. Now, well, this is important because if you're like me, I want to jump right into the doing. All right, give me, the, give me the top six things that I can put into operation right now and I can become spiritually violent. Because there's something in the natural man and in your mind and in my mind that we want a list. Just give me the list. Give me the six things and I'll do it so I can be effective. And God just doesn't operate off of a list. Now, if you're married, you probably know this because you know what? I've never seen the book that says, if you do these 10 things, your wife's going to be happy, your home's going to be at peace, and, and everything's going to be great. My wife, she's sitting right there, and I love her so much. She's sitting right next to Amy, two pastors' wives right there. And I can, I can tell you, when I got married, there was no do these 10 things, and you're going to have a great marriage. God said, no, I'm not going to give you a list because a list won't help you. Now, in our mind, we think a list is going to help us. Oh, Lord, it would be so simple. How can, I, how can I understand this woman, this beautiful woman that you've given me? How can I do this? Just give me 10 things, and I'll do it. And God says, no, I'm not going to give you that. Because I need you to learn some things in relationship. That's where I want you to learn these things. Because what happens is when God begins to reveal things for us to do, or, or we, we tend to go the extra, extra mile and create a list, and then we default to the list and not the relationship. We get all wrapped up in the list of to-dos, and we forget about the one we are in relationship with. And then that mindset begins to propagate and be actual fertile ground for a spirit of religion to be cultivated in us that drives us to be very performance-based and not peace-based. So that's why we will be very careful here before I give you. Now, I do have a list I'm going to give you, oddly enough, but it's going to be born out of something else and not what you might think it is. Does that make sense? Because we love to run to doing too quick. Let me just say it this way. 
I, like I told you in Brazil, I learned how to do spiritual violence before learning how to do love. I learned how to do spiritual violence, these things to do, before I learned how to do love. And I can tell you that's not the best way to do it. There's a far better way to appropriate the means of grace, the things that we can do to be spiritually violent. Not out of doing, but out of a place of being. Hear that? Okay. So before we get into that things to do for spiritual violence, we're going to address a few things first. Number one is this. I have a concern that I want to tell you about. It's a concern that I've had for some time, and it was really only up until putting together this particular message that I began to put some vocabulary around a a, um, concern in my own heart. And the concern is this. We have normalized stumbling amongst Christians. We've normalized stumbling. What do I mean by stumbling? That we've, we've, we've created a culture where it's actually acceptable for people to continually stumble in the same temptation over and over and over again. And we've accepted that's just a normal part of the Christian experience. We've normalized stumbling. Stumbling. And I, I, I think part of the reason is, and if you've been around the church for very long, you, you may have heard a Christian say this statement before. They say, I, I am just a sinner saved by grace. Have you heard that statement? It sounds so virtuous. It sounds so humble. But can I tell you, it is a most noble sounding lie because it's not true. You are not a sinner saved by grace. You are a saint filled with grace. You are a saint filled with grace. Now let's follow the reasoning here just for a second. If I, in my mind, I may not have articulated that way, but if I think somewhere in my cerebellum that I am am just a sinner that's saved by grace, if I begin to think that in my mind, and, 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 I, and I know the Bible says, whatever a man thinks in his heart, so is he, then guess what I have just set myself up to do? To sin and to stumble. Are you tracking? In other words, if I'm thinking I'm a sinner, then guess what you're going to do? You're going to sin because you're expecting to sin. Neuroscience tells us that our brain has been equipped with this thing called the, um, the RAS, the Reticular Activating System, the RAS. God designed our brain in this amazing way that we actually see and experience what we're actually looking to see and experience. It's like this. You're, you have had this happen and may not even know it. Maybe you're considering buying a brand new car, thinking, man, I want a, I want a blue Prius. I don't know why you'd want a blue Prius, but maybe that's what you want to get. I want to buy a blue Prius. And then, you, and then you're out and about town, and, and, and you're in the Chick-fil-A drive-thru, and lo and behold, there is a blue Prius right in front of you. Wow. And the next day, you pull up to the red light. There's a blue Prius there. And then the next day, you're in the Walmart parking lot. Well, there's a, there's a blue Prius. Now, you might be thinking, this must be confirmation. This must be God. God is supernaturally causing these blue Priuses to appear everywhere. But can I tell you, they were there all the time. Because your brain understands through the reticular activating system in your brain that if I begin to think I want something, then my brain begins to filter out everything else except for that thing I'm looking for. Isn't that cool how your mind does that? 
So therefore, the principle also works here too. If I'm thinking I'm really a sinner saved by grace, then what am I going to do? I'm going to more readily fall into sin and give into temptation, knowing I can step right into grace and forgiveness. And therefore, we have normalized a culture of stumbling. Now that sounds virtuous, but it's not biblical and it's not true. If we still think of ourselves that way, that's what's going to happen. But the truth is, listen, you are a saint filled with grace. That's what the Bible teaches, that you're a saint filled with grace. And that level of thinking is going to inform everything else. See, the truth is that we don't have to stumble. You say, well, that's impossible. How can I not sin? Listen, no, it's not about what you think. Well, the, what the book says, you don't have to stumble. You can actually live free, and I can live free of sinning and stumbling. Because what happens is, if, if we have a mindset that says, oh, I'm just going to stumble all the time, then all we're doing, our entire faith is lived out in a defensive posture. Now, defense is important, but we're not called in this life just to play defense. Thank God for defense, but do you realize we're actually called to be an offensive people? See, spiritual violence in us can only manifest itself through a people who go on the offensive and move out of the defensive all the time. But I find myself engaging with so many Christians and the, and the, and the primary playbook they're operating out of is solely a defensive posture. Now, every now and then, a defensive posture might gain you a touchdown. Every now and then, that might happen. The guy on the defensive end ends up having to catch the football, and he turns around and runs a touchdown, and it feels right, but it's a different thing. We're actually called to be offensive in what God has called us to do. We don't have to stumble. You said, well, I'll prove it, preacher. I have a hard time believing that because I stumbled last night. Let's just, let's just allow the Spirit of God to rebuild and rework our theology for a minute in truth that our mind can be renewed to these things, that we can move into the sainthood that, we're, that we already are and called into. All right, Hebrews 2, 18, look at this. For since he himself, Jesus, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Basics. That Jesus, Jesus comes to our aid when we are tempted. That's how I know we don't have to stumble. Because who's coming to help us? Jesus. Is he able to help you when you're being tempted? I think he's able. Is he able to provide a way of escape? Yes, he is. He's coming to us with the sole purpose of winning victory over temptation. Jesus is right there with you. I think sometimes we feel like when we're in a moment of temptation, we're actually so far from God because we have lies of shame and condemnation in our mind. And we think that, and we think that the Holy Spirit is actually repulsed by us when we are experiencing temptation because it seems so vile and nasty in our, in our own mind. But that's not true. In fact, I believe this. I believe that when we are tempted, Jesus is drawing closer to us because he's a high priest and he wants to be right there with us to help us out of it. That's what Jesus does. Now look at these two different passages. So this word stumbling, I mentioned a moment ago, is found twice in the New Testament. It's, it's translated stumbling in English, but in the Greek, it's actually two different words. You see, that's why we lose things sometimes in translation. That's why when you begin to study the Bible, it's always healthy to take a look back at, so what's, what's kind of the Greek saying and what's the 
Hebrew saying, and you don't have to be a Greek scholar or a Hebrew scholar. There's so many, there's so many resources that help you do this. But there are two words in the Greek that are used for the word stumbling that gives us a little bit of insight here. First one is found in John 16, 1. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you that you may be kept from what? Stumbling. Now, in this passage, stumbling comes from the Greek word skandalizo. Now, you probably, this should sound familiar to you because what does skandalizo sound like? A scandal. Nobody likes a scandal. So stumbling happens when we're involved in some kind of a, some kind of a scandal, and a scandal is built on what? Lies, misinformation, misdirection. A scandal is birthed. Now, it's defined this way, to put a snare causing one to fall, to employ a tactic making someone take offense. So in this, we see there's a, there's, a, there's a snare being put in the way that's going to try to get you to fall and also even pick up an offense. So that's the first time the word is used. The second time the word is used is in the big book of Jude, verse 24. Only one chapter in the book of Jude, Jude 24. You may have heard this one before. Now to him who is able to what? Keep you from stumbling. Let me just remind you what I said a moment ago. If we have normalized stumbling into temptation, we have accepted that as this, that's just the way it is. That is a, a complete contradiction to what the Bible is teaching. Listen, now to him who, Jesus, who is able to keep you, who, me, yes, me, from stumbling. Why? Because he comes to me to aid me in temptation. And then by the work of Jesus and grace in my life, he then makes us stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. So it's a work of Jesus then, a work of grace who comes and empowers us in the time of temptation and testing to help us get out of it without sinning and stumbling. And the Greek word here is another interesting word for stumbling. It is optistos, optistos. And it literally means standing firm, exempt from falling or sure-footed. So if we are going to marry these two Greek words together, and I believe what's a good interpretation is this. We stumble because we are victims to the enemy's schemes. We stumble because we are victims to the enemy's schemes. The truth is our adversary, he's good at what he does, but he runs the same plays over and over and over again. The enemy is not that creative. He runs the same playbook over and over again. And once you begin to learn by the Spirit his playbook, he isn't difficult to defeat. But it's more than just running better plays. It's more than that. This is true but there's something else that's going on here that Jesus is doing in us that these passages bear out. Jesus is coming to us and doing something within us to help us stand against the enemy's plans. Because what God is not after, and this is so important, what God is not after is he is not after behavior modification. He's not after, be, he's not after modifying my behavior that's tied directly to my own willpower. He is after transformation by grace. In other words, this is not behavior modification tied to willpower. It is a transformation in our hearts by grace. 
And we're able to do this not from willpower, but from standing in and around and surrounded by the grace of God. Again, I want to loop back and just say this. It is risky for us to dart ahead, making application for do these four things and you're going to be free from stumbling and sin without really having revelation on what Jesus is doing through the power of grace in our life that fuels a spiritual violence in us. Let me illustrate this way for us. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1. I love this passage. Galatians 5.1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Now, just at a cursory look at this passage, you see two things going on. You see Jesus doing something, and then you see us doing something. You see, Jesus is setting us free. Then I need to stand firm so I once again don't fall into a yoke of slavery to sin. Do you see it? You see a work of Jesus setting us free, but then it's incumbent upon me then to stay free. Stay free. Now, I can tell you staying free can be a daunting task if you run off and try to do this in the flesh and through willpower. Our standing that Paul is talking about here in Galatians 5, our standing in an, an effectiveness is completely dependent on grace and not a fleshly willpower. Our standing is dependent upon grace and not on fleshly willpower. Can I tell you that everybody's willpower has an expiration date? Everybody's willpower has an expiration date. Now, we all do this, don't we? Some of us have extraordinary amounts of willpower. You can, you can look in your pantry at home, and there's that big bag of Ruffles potato chips, and you know it's there. And you also know in the refrigerator, there's a Tupperware dish full of French onion dip. And you know that's not on your plan. And I'm going to say, I'm going to have enough willpower. I'm going to resist it. I'm going to resist it. And you walk by it, you walk by it, you walk by it. And you do a good, you do a good job. You may last a week. You may last like eight days. But there's going to come a moment and you're going to wake up at 2 a.m. in the morning and you're going to have a cognitive flash. There's a bag of Russell's potato chips in the pantry. And there's some French onion dip. And something's going to grab a hold of you. Now, I've never experienced this. I'm just, I've heard this can happen to people. That they get right out of bed and they run down and they, and they eat that. And then they feel awful afterwards. And they spend lots of time repenting. The truth is that, yes, we all have a degree of willpower. And willpower is very successful in establishing behavior modification. But it will not play the test of time. It will ultimately fail you, and you end up back in the same boat you were. It may not manifest itself the same way. We've heard this. I've heard great stories of, of people that has been able to kick bad habits like nicotine, smoking. Man, they, they, they fought it, and they, and, they, and they got through it, and they kicked the nicotine habit, but within seven weeks, they gained 100 pounds. They went from the nicotine right to the nachos. So willpower doesn't work well for us. Then how is it then... 
Are, how is it that are, are we able to stand in this grace? That we don't have to strive in it, we can stand in it. Let me illustrate it here. I think Ezekiel illustrates this for us beautifully. Let's look at the life of Ezekiel for a second. Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, Then he, God, said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet that I may speak with you. So here is Ezekiel getting this message from God. It says, stand up, Ezekiel. I want to I talk to you. Now, what we tend to do is we, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to stand up, and I'm going to make every effort to get on my feet so God can speak with me. But, but look at what is illustrated for us here. Son of man, stand on your feet that I may speak with you. And he spoke to me. The Spirit entered me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. Do you see that? That God tells Ezekiel to stand, but then it's the Spirit of God who enters Ezekiel, causing him to stand. That's what grace looks like. It's not Ezekiel trying to exercise this striving and difficulty to stand up. It's actually the Spirit of God standing up inside of Ezekiel, causing him to be able to stand. This is a beautiful picture of the working of the grace of God in our life. Because God is not looking for our strength. He's actually looking for our weakness. And that is so counterintuitive to everything that we're taught in the natural world. That we need to capitalize on our strengths. We need to build up our strengths. We need to project our strengths. When I go into the interview, when I have conversations, I need to make sure I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hide my weakness and project my strength so I can land this job or that job. Or I can impress this person or that person. I tell you, that's, that's not what God is asking of us. He does not want us to project our strength. Because here's the truth. He already knows your weaknesses. He knows them better than you do. He already sees them. That's why this God of grace by the Spirit is, is not going to be repulsed by your moment of wicked temptation. That means he's going to step right in the middle of it with you because he's not repulsed by it. He's not looking for your strength. He's looking for your weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and I want to kind of end right here. We'll, we'll like, like put a marker until next time. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Who's ever heard this verse? I love this verse. But I think I misinterpreted it a lot. And Jesus said to me, Jesus speaking to Paul in this famous passage, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Now, I thought for a long time, that what this literally meant is that, is that, is that God was going to somehow see my weakness and, and swap it out for strength. That he was going to like see my weakness and then exchange it for strength. But notice the all-important preposition that's found here. It says that his power is perfected in weakness, not in replace of weakness, but actually in weakness itself. 
We might wrongly think our weakness is replaced by strength, but that is not what is being said here. It is actually through our weakness that God's strength flows. That is why Paul is declaring here, I'm going to boast in my weakness. Because Paul learned the secret to manifest power is not by my own willpower and projecting my natural strength, but actually clinging to and acknowledging the very weakness I have because that is the means by which the grace of God is going to be poured forth in our life. But it's so counterintuitive to everything you're going to hear coming from the world of man. This is a truth that comes from the kingdom and the spirit. That's why religion seeks to shut the door of the kingdom in people's faces and propagates a list of do's that you need to do to have favor with God and to experience grace. So you see how contorted it gets. Our strength comes in the midst of our weaknesses. Now I'm going to date myself here and we'll kind of end with this very highly spiritual thought. Who remembers Popeye the sailor man? Remember Popeye? Do we have a graphic? I think we have a graphic of Popeye. Remember him? I liked watching Popeye. Does anybody know anything about Popeye? Some of you are too young to even know what Popeye. Well, so Popeye was a sailor man. That's what he did. But Popeye was not very strong. He was pretty weak. But Popeye had a secret. You know what his secret was? When Bluto was beating him up and he was trying to steal his precious girlfriend, olive oil, man, all Popeye had to do was go get a can of spinach. And you see, where's the image again? The meta go. Let's 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 meditate on that for a second. Just don't look at me. Just look at look at Popeye. Now, if you saw the cartoon, you would notice something, right? You would notice that that Popeye was going to grab the spinach and he would like squeeze it, open it up, and he squeeze it, and the and the spinach would pop out, and 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 he would eat it. And this little weak lethargic sailor man began to pulse with power. His muscles began to bulge. His forearms began to bulge, and he would kick, you know what, and take names for the rest of the episode. As cool as that is, that is not what Paul is describing right here. That is not actually what the Holy Spirit is doing. He's not coming in as this spinach that every time I get a dose of the ghost, that I'm going to like all of a sudden have this power that's going to take the place of my weakness. And then guess what happens? Well, then I got to, the spinach is going to run through my system, and it's going to, I'm going to be weak again, then i got to get more spinach. That is not who the Holy Spirit is. That's not the purpose of Jesus. We are actually invited in to the greatest place of freedom you can ever imagine. It's to say, I am weak, and I am broken, and I am messed up. And just say, yes, now we can do some business. Because you're acknowledging the very truth of what already is. You say, I'm not really that weak. Listen, how many of us would like to walk around with a bubble on the top of our head saying everything we're thinking about every person and everything in real time? You would never leave the house, would you? None of us would. That if, if every thought in our brain that passed through our brain was being read by everybody around us, we would all want to stay home. The truth is, brothers and sisters, we are all weak and we're all broken. But in that place of acknowledgement of that very thing that is oh so true. The grace of God explodes in your life with such power that out of this messed up lump of clay, there's a Holy Spirit 
that's going to stand up inside me. The danger is, is I'm trying to stand up in my own strength versus letting the Holy Spirit stand up inside me. It's possible, and we'll see this in the coming weeks, it's, it's possible to go out and do spiritual violence and learn how to do all these things but never really get what it means to do love. It's possible to have a performance-based thing in your life that proceeds out of the will and not from a place of true peace with God. And it's from that place that these things can be manifest in our life, that we don't have to be a person that stumbles and falters. It's not God's grace. I was telling Billy just the other day that I found that no matter what I preach on or what I teach on or what I say or what subject matter it is, the punchline, the culmination always comes back to the very fact that we need Jesus. We need to encounter his love. We need to experience him. That is the source point for everything that God wants to do in our lives. And once that is in place, once a real revelation of the grace of God and the love of God happens in our life, then what happens is there is a spiritual violence that can grow from the fertile soil of abiding that will transform your life and my life into not one who stumbles, but one who is actually victorious over the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So, man, I challenge all of us in the coming days. We are postured right now one week from today is Pentecost Sunday. And we have been praying and we have been believing that the power of the Holy Spirit would bring to all of us a personal Pentecost and a corporate Pentecost that would bring these truths so much in our heart because we need the Holy Spirit so much. Amen? All right, let's take a moment. Let's just, let's just pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Father, it's not in doing better. Lord, it's in being better. It's in understanding who we really are. Lord, I ask that, that you forgive Forgive us, Lord, for being so impetuous and running off and missing things so quickly. Lord, we are just, we're little kids. We're just children. And you're a loving Heavenly Father, and you're so patient with us. You were so patient with me for years and years and years as running off to do spiritual violence. And I was actually running away from the very thing that you were inviting me into. That I was rejoicing more that evil spirits were subject to me than my name that was written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I missed so many things, Lord, so many months and weeks and years of intimacy and abiding with you and, and grace and the sweetness of that. So, Lord, I pray in this season as, as we are, are looking to the day of Pentecost as we not only memorialize this day, but Lord, it is an anticipatory expectation that in the last days, you would pour out your spirit on all flesh. It's not something you just did, but it's something you are doing and gonna to continue to do. And Lord, just as birth pains on a pregnant woman bring on the intensity 
of the shakings at the end of the days, so God, there is an intensity of the move of God in this hour. And Lord, we say we want to be first in line. Holy Spirit, help us. Help us, God. So I'm asking you right now to stir our hearts. I'm asking you for a zeal for you. A zeal for you to be cultivated. A zeal for your house. A zeal for the Lord. But not a zeal that would cause us to run off and do a list of things. Lord, it would be a zeal that is fueled by a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. And a desire to be close to you, Jesus. And from that place, Lord, there would be a transformation of our hearts. That would be a work of grace and peace not a work of striving, angst, and willpower. Come, Holy Spirit, help us to see, help us to hear. We love you. We thank you, Lord, in the strong and great name of Jesus. Amen.